everyone, it's Jules, your host of the All Things Eisen podcast. Welcome to this week's episode, which is an update about the details regarding how Eisen has successfully flattened the COVID-19 curve. On April 1st, I published a podcast episode that detailed the steps Eisen took after authorities found out about the virus in late December. I walked you through all the restrictions put in place, but the timeline for those updates ended in mid-March. If you haven't already, I recommend checking that out so you can have the full timeline. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes of this episode for you to listen to it if you haven't already had the chance. This episode is a continuation of that timeline and will provide insight on what has been happening in the country up until present day. I'm recording this on May 27th, so keep in mind that any major news regarding the virus that happened after that date will be shared on my Instagram account. In fact, I do a weekly roundup of the news each Sunday in my stories, so you can join me there to keep up on interesting news happening within the country, and then on other days I mix it up with various types of content. If you prefer Facebook, you can follow along there, which is also all things Iceland. I also post things on my Facebook page I can't normally do on Instagram, like sharing the links to news stories or any other types of updates that I think might be useful. Not surprisingly, though, regarding the virus, a lot has happened here, and I find it interesting to look back on it and share it with you. Hopefully, you also find it interesting. So I've kind of set this up in chronological order. And when I say kind of, I mean that I blocked off the different months to kind of give you an overview of what was happening each month, starting from mid-March, as I mentioned before. So hopefully this gives you an idea of how things progressed from mid-March, escalated, and then how things are currently. I did a ton of research for this episode in order to kind of give you as most accurate information as possible. And all the articles that I have read or I'm referencing in this episode, there are hyperlinks within the text of the episode in the show notes. So you can check those out depending on if you're reading about something that's happening in March or April or May, whichever. You can just check out the different texts there and go to those articles if you just want to read more in depth regarding that specific topic that I'm talking about at the time. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. Even though it was obvious that the cases of coronavirus in Iceland were continuing to rise, up until mid-March, travelers from around the world were allowed to enter the country without going into quarantine. However, residents of Iceland coming from high-risk countries like China or Italy were mandated to be in quarantine for 14 days if they had been overseas. The argument, or at least the logic, behind the fact that travelers didn't have to go into quarantine immediately when they came to the country is that they didn't normally come in close contact with locals, so the risk of infection is low. From a personal standpoint, I found that very bizarre. I didn't agree with it because visitors would need to go into the same markets as residents, especially since restaurants had been shut down due to the ban on gatherings. Also, if a visitor were to fall ill, they would definitely come in contact with residents who had to care for them. Well, on March 17th, an Australian man in his 30s, which I believe he was 36, died while visiting North Iceland. Even though his symptoms were not typical of a person with COVID-19, 
he did test positive for the virus when they did an autopsy. And his wife also tested positive, even though she did not die. And she, of course, was in isolation. It was really sad and unfortunate that this happened. One consequence of it being that we didn't know that this guy initially had COVID-19 when he fell ill and went to the Husavik Health Center is that 20 people who did help him at the health center as well as emergency responders had to go into quarantine. And as a result, the clinic had to scale back its operations after this because they were short-staffed. So as I just mentioned, this whole idea of tourist having the virus but not potentially coming in contact with locals, I feel like was a little short-sighted on the authorities' part when it comes to how deeply this can affect society. Granted, I don't have very harsh criticisms of how this has been handled in Iceland, and I just want to make it very clear that I think that the authorities, meaning the chief epidemiologist, the director of health, and the chief chief superintendent, have done a great job. And I very much applaud them for all of the measures that they put in place and how well things have been going overall. But this one thing for sure, and there's another thing coming up later, that was worrisome to me. And I also just thought it was unfortunate, too, that this was the first coronavirus-related death in the country. One bright side, I guess you can call it, to this happening is that there was a Facebook group that was started to send condolences from Iceland or Icelanders to the widow of the Australian man. I have a link to that If you want to try and access it, you do have to request to join the group. But I just thought it was really heartfelt and beautiful that people realized that, yes, these people did come in and unknowingly, you know, had the virus. They might have potentially spread to other people, but they were also away from home. And it's got to be so difficult. And I I can't really imagine how I would feel if I knew that my husband died while we were on vacation and I then had to be in quarantine because I had the virus too and it's just super sad. So I think that was just a really sweet response from Icelanders to this woman. Within a day or so after this happening, it was announced that the European Union or the EU was imposing a 30-day travel ban on non-essential travel on countries outside of its union and certain partner countries. This was of course done to control the spread of the virus. Even though Iceland is not part of the EU, it is an EFTA country, and EFTA, which is E-F-T-A, that acronym stands for European Free Trade Association. EFTA citizens and the residents of the UK were exempt from the non-essential travel ban. Initially, Iceland did not seem interested in taking part in the travel ban, but they eventually decided to do it. What made the travel ban different in Iceland, as opposed to the EU's ban, is that it included countries that were not part of EEA, so the European Economic Area and EFTA. Basically, Iceland was still open to travelers from certain countries in Europe. This was a bit troubling to some people here, including myself, that basically, like I mentioned, people can come in without being into quarantine. However, there had been an announcement that residents of Iceland entering the country, regardless of if they had been in a high-risk country or not, would have to go into quarantine for 14 days. So at that point in time, uh, so this is mid-March, 
Iceland had up to 250 confirmed cases of the virus and more than 2,000 people in quarantine. It was very difficult in mid-March because that's when we really started to see a sharp increase in confirmed cases. From March 17th until the 31st, the average amount of confirmed cases a day was about 67. The highest number of confirmed cases was 106 on March 24th. It still stands as the highest number. For a country of about 360,000 people, those are very high numbers. There were two main reasons for, the, for these numbers. One is that the testing was being done vigorously at L'Hospitali National Hospital, and Decode Genetics was also helping out in this. Overall, they had been able to collect 9,189 samples of people who had volunteered to come in and get tested by March 20th. The second reason is that according to an Iceland Monitor article is that, quote, a team of 16 healthcare workers and 22 police officers were working every day on tracing the origin of new infections so that people who need to be in quarantine can be contacted, end quote. Being proactive with tracking down those who had been in contact with an infected person was a great strategy. On March 22nd, authorities stated that, quote, 50% of the new cases are people who are already in quarantine, end quote. One snag that the country ran into was a shortage in testing swabs. They were awaiting a shipment due to come in the following week. Also, more than 500 healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, and so on, signed up to work at Landspitali Hospital to help with the fast-growing amount of patients. The amount of people that stepped up to help is incredible and awe-inspiring. So I think just in general, it's great that people were just willing to help and even a private company like Deco Genetics, which I, which I talked about in the previous episode, were doing their best. But of course, if there aren't enough testing swabs, that's a major problem. And this is, I guess, one of those things that for the future, Iceland will just probably have an abundance of because it really stagnated progress. And I know that I tried to go and get tested not that I felt sick or anything, but I just wanted to make sure because I'd heard some people were asymptomatic. But when I called, they were pretty overwhelmed and they weren't able to see me. And they told me, you know, don't come in or try to get tested unless you have some type of symptoms. And then Decode Genetics, even though they initially had set up a website for you to to find a possible time to get tested, they weren't available, I think, for it was almost a few weeks in which it was very difficult to find a slot. So with all of this going on, even though people were really coming get together to help, there were more stricter bans put in place on gatherings. In my first update about this virus, I talk about a gathering ban, and it was prohibited for more than 100 people to meet. That was now reduced to 20 people or less. Grocery stores and drugstores were still allowed to have 100 people or less. However, swimming pools, fitness centers, bars, museums, and so on had to close. The two-meter social distancing rule still applied wherever you were, and people were pretty diligent about that. I worked from home during this time, but my workplace, which employs about 40 people, didn't close. Instead, it split the company up into three groups— Two groups would alternate coming into the office and one group would work from home the whole time. It was quite strange to do this uh, and anyone that wanted to work from home the whole time was allowed to. It surprised me though that the amount of people that wanted to come to the office and I think it's just a circumstantial thing because 
I don't have any children and my home is a place where I have, you know, a desk where I can sit down and work. And just in general, I think some people really like to separate work from being at home. So there were some people who were very eager to be in the office. I was not that way, but I can completely understand. Here, though, when it came to children, a lot of the high schools and colleges were doing distance learning. However, younger kids, say those in kindergarten, preschool, and elementary school, were still able to go to school for at least a few hours a day. Or if they were going throughout the day, there was a small amount of the students that were able to be there just so they wouldn't break this 20 people or less rule. Overall, though, many companies that were much larger than the one that I work for had everybody working from home or just maybe had a select few people that would come in. So it just varied a lot depending on how companies responded to this. In general, though, this was a big shakeup for everybody's life on top of the fact that we were all really anxious about what was going to happen and if, you know, how much worse this virus is going to get. There was no question that everyone in Iceland and dare I say the world has been pondering how much the pandemic will affect the economy for individual nations and on a global scale. In the previous episode, I mentioned that Parliament had pledged to help businesses and those in quarantine. However, not a ton of details were shared about how they exactly planned to do that until a week or two later. During the same weekend as the stricter bans on gatherings were announced, a sweeping economic plan was rolled out to help soften the blow of the virus's impact on the economy. Parliament allocated 230 billion ISK, which is about 1.6 billion US dollars or 1.5 billion euros, and about 8% of the country's GDP to stimulate the economy. They have three goals in doing this. And the first is to protect the livelihoods of residents and businesses. The second is to protect the foundations of society. And the third is to fuel a major investment initiative. There was a list of how they were going to help stimulate the economy. And I'm just going to run through what some of those things are, which are taking up to 75% of salaries. So for companies that really fell on hard times, which was a lot of companies here in Iceland, due to the virus, the government basically pledged to help pay up to a certain amount, 75% of employee salaries, just so they can stave off companies doing mass layoffs, which would then make the unemployment rate in the country skyrocket. So let's just say, for instance, you're 100% employed with a company, but they are being deeply affected by this you know, virus and what's going on and, and can't provide any services. They can lower you down to them paying, the company paying 25% of your salary, and the Icelandic government will then pay the other 75% up to a certain amount, which I think was 700,000 ISK a month. So that was a really good deal for Icelandic companies and for employees, because at least they were still getting a decent amount of their paycheck each month, or at least in March and going on, you know, this was supposed to happen until I believe... July 1st. And then other things that they were pl are planning to do with this money is a state-backed bridging of loans for companies 
deferral of tax payments. So companies can postpone the payment of taxes until next year. This is meant to improve liquidity in business operations. Also, hotel taxes will be abolished until the end of 2021. They plan to have some financial support specifically for the tourism sector, which is hit the hardest, a one-off child benefit payment, access to third pillar pension savings. So you can use your private pension savings in order to help with anything that is necessary, whether it's paying your bills or other payments or things you deem necessary. A refund of VAT for construction projects. So VAT reimbursement for construction and maintenance work will increase from 60% to 100%, which is a huge amount because VAT uh, are the taxes and those taxes on top of already paying for work for something can significantly add to the cost of that construction project. Lastly, public projects will be accelerated. They essentially are pumping a lot into investing in the technology infrastructure and in increasing investment in transport, public construction and technology infrastructure. The government essentially wants to fuel innovation here and to contribute to research and science as well. One thing that caused me and others anxiety in Iceland was not being sure when we will reach the height of the curve and also when it eventually will flatten. And I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you also had a very similar feeling, if not still have that feeling, depending on where you live. And according to an article on Iceland Monitor, quote, the latest statistical forecast available on covid.hi.is now predicts that the disease will reach a peak in Iceland in mid-April. The model predicts that by the end of April, the total number of confirmed cases could be anywhere from 2,500 to 6,000. The number of people requiring hospitalization during the pandemic could total anywhere from 170 to 400. People hospitalized in mid-April could number 90 to 200. Now this, mind you, is still in March. So hearing the range, 2,500 to 6,000 is very troubling in a country this small. I was shocked to see it, and frankly, it made me feel a little worried that the virus is spreading like a wildfire, and it was inevitable that many people I know would get it, and that there was also a good chance I would get it too. Fortunately, this prediction changed dramatically within the same week. During a press conference, Thor Asplund, a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Iceland, presented data that showed lower numbers. He explained that due to health officials' measures to contain the virus, they have managed to keep the amount of confirmed cases from growing exponentially. It has now it was now predicted that about 1,200 infections would be expected at the peak of the virus. A range of 1,500 to 2,300 is the total number of infections that was forecasted in Iceland. While this is still a decent amount, it's way better than possibly having 6,000 infections. Some other major stories in late March were about the immediate impact of the virus on travel and tourism companies. Granted, every industry slowed down because of the pandemic, but not like the two I just mentioned. For instance, Iceland Air was operating at 14% capacity and stopped all, pretty much all flight services. At that time, they laid off 240 employees. Any remaining employees had taken a pay cut and were on a reduced employment ratio. 
One prediction is that the Icelandic travel industry will lose as much as 260 billion ISK or $1.8 billion, which is also around 1.7 billion euros. The calculations are based on this industry bringing in no income from foreign tourists from mid-March to the end of August. One thing I found fascinating is that even though domestic travel in other Nordic countries accounts for about 50% of the travel industry in those countries, it is only about 10% in Iceland. Icelanders are pretty big on finding deals, and they know that buying things in, in the country can be quite expensive, so they often travel to less expensive destinations where they can make their krona stretch a little bit further throughout the year. So just to ma- wrap up March... On the 31st of the month, the total number of confirmed infections was 1,086. 9,236 were in quarantine, 927 were in isolation, and 157 had recovered from the virus. Overall, 16,484 samples had been analyzed, which accounts for about 4.5% of the country. There were two confirmed deaths this month from the virus. One positive piece of news is that 6,000 swabs were found at the Medical Microbiology and Virology Department of the Landspitali Hospital. This was a huge relief because the shortage of swabs meant that testing was slowing down. It was expressed that Iceland had been expecting 10,000 swabs from the U.S. However, those swabs ended up going to the highest bidder, who is said to have paid in cash. We had at least 9,000 swabs available now for testing after finding those additional 6,000. The hope is that those were enough until more swabs were received. April was kicked off with the sad realization the unemployment rate was going to soar. In March, the rate was between 7.5 to 8%, but the prediction for April was a whopping 12 to 13%. This amounts to about 50,000 people being unemployed in the country. According to a news article, quote, The Directorate of Labor had received 25,000 applications yesterday for unemployment benefits as a result of a reduced employment ratio, a program offered by the government as an incentive to employers to not lay off their workers during the economic shutdown, which is caused by the pandemic. About half of the applications came from people who work in the travel industry, and related operations. 17% came from people who work in retail and the shipping of goods, and 11% came from those who work in the industrial sector, construction, fisheries, or farming, end quote. The hardest hit region is the Reykjanes Peninsula, where the unemployment rate was predicted to reach 23.7%. One of the worst fears that many had came to fruition when news broke the virus was spreading in a nursing home in the West Fjords. One of the residents was found to have the virus. Unfortunately, he died, and many of the staff and residents had to be put into quarantine or isolation. Their status of going to quarantine or isolation was just based on whether they had tested positive for the virus. A reserve force of nurses were flown in to Bolingarvik, the small town of 931 people, where this happened in the West Fjords, Bolingarvik banned gatherings of more than five people after this happened. This ban was stricter than the rest of the country, was restricting it to 20 or less people being able to gather at any one time. The troubles in Iceland were not just isolated to those living in the country. 
Many passengers with ice and air were worried about getting refunded or at least credit for their flights that had to be canceled. A local news publisher, Ice and Monitor, received a lot of complaints about the airline during this trying time. Here are some of the things people wrote. Quote, Ice and Air has been absent in helping us cancel or rebook our travel. Especially those with economy light tickets are asked to call their customer support number, which has been unreachable for more than two weeks. Unquote. Other readers wrote in to say, quote, suspending their toll-free support line so that no customers can get through, not allowing customers to cancel their flights online via desktop or mobile app, only offering waived change fees, and simply not returning fares for trips people cannot take, regardless of what citizenship they have or crediting customer accounts for future travel, which in many cases equates to thousands and thousands of dollars lost, end quote. That same person ended up saying that they had to dial the local Iceland office number to get through and incurred a bill of $125. In response to these complaints and requests on their Facebook page, Iceland Air wrote the following, quote, We're sorry. The sheer number of messages requires us to refocus our efforts in order to reach you all. Until further notice, we will not be replying to social media messages or mentions, end quote. Under that same message, they provide links for where people can change their bookings on their website and their app. Later on, I found out that Iceland Air's system couldn't handle canceling flights more than 48 hours in advance. They worked on updating the system to be able to do this. However, some people who had flights scheduled less than 24 hours from when they were supposed to take off in April complained of not receiving cancellation notifications. I'm sure the airline was overwhelmed with all of this that was happening, but it seems that they, they dropped the ball in April. As mentioned in March, it was expected that the travel industry wouldn't make money for the next three months. However, Johannes Thor Skulason, managing director of SOF, the Icelandic Travel Industry Association, said that tourism companies might not make any income until 2021. In early April, 50,000 packages of chloroquine from India arrived in Iceland. These packages were a gift to the nation and were purchased by the pharmaceutical company Alvagen. I'm not sure if the drug was actually used to treat patients, but Lanspidali did say they would decide to use it when necessary. The drug was developed to help fight malaria and has serious side effects, including death. For my listeners from the United States, you have probably heard this drug or at least hydroxychloroquine being mentioned in the news. This drug should not be used unless absolutely necessary and under the close supervision of a medical professional. News also broke that Japan had gifted Iceland 12,200 tablets of Avagen, an antiviral medication. The drug has been shown to inhibit replication of the viral genome. There are clinical trials happening around the world, and this drug is being used to treat seriously ill patients. When it arrives, it will be able to treat about 100 patients in Iceland if necessary. While it is great to have these drugs to help those with the virus, it seems that a vaccine is possibly the only hope we have for eradicating this virus. And that is not just based off of what's happening in Iceland, but of course around the world. But it is at least good that there are some drugs and medication out there that could potentially help to combat the virus, especially if you fall seriously ill. In the midst of so much turmoil and uncertainty, there was a special anniversary that occurred in April. 
This month marked the 10-year anniversary of Eyjafjallajökull glacier erupting and changing Iceland into a major tourist destination. Because the eruption caused major disruption to flights around the world, about 400 foreign reporters flocked to the country to tell the story. Their footage showed the awe-inspiring landscapes and just how fantastic it is to visit a country so deeply connected to nature. 488,000 foreign visitors ended up coming to the country by the end of 2010. The visitor numbers kept exploding for many years after that. As I talked about in my episode about the collapse of Wow Air, this volcanic eruption kicked off the boom of the tourist industry here. Many of the companies that made money hand over fist for the last decade might not make it through this current economic downturn, which is a pretty stark reality to have to come to terms with. Regarding in how information was being spread in Iceland throughout this time, most of the information was available in Icelandic and English. However, there are people that live here who don't understand or speak either of those languages well. Not having access to important information regarding their safety or the safety of their families can cause distrust. Thankfully, a few things were done to tackle this problem. The COVID.is website that shows all the statistics about the virus and important announcements was translated into Icelandic, English, Polish, Spanish, Arabic, Farsi, and a few more languages. Rakhnink C19, the app that was developed to track people with the virus and alert those that had been in the same vicinity as an infected person, was also translated. The app was launched this month, and all of this was done in an amazingly quick manner, and I applaud everybody who was involved in helping to implement this. The daily briefings by the chief epidemiologist, director of health, and chief superintendent were only in Icelandic. But awesome people in Facebook groups like Away From Home Living in Iceland would translate press briefings into English. What's beautiful is that there's a lot of kindness and inclusiveness happening while the virus was continuing to escalate because everyone just realized that we're in this together and we all deserve to have access to the same information so we can be informed and also help to keep each other safe. Another thing that happened in April that surprised and kind of confused me was that now tourists of the country who were coming in, who were planning to enter starting April 22nd until May 14th, would go into 14 days of quarantine. My first thought was, why now? It's not like the tourists were flooding in or even trickling into the country. Regardless, there was this mandatory quarantine, and the chief epidemiologist said in a press conference that, quote, whether Iceland's borders will be opened is not what makes or breaks the Icelandic tourism industry, since there is next to no tourism in the world now anyway, end quote, which is exactly how I felt. So we were already kind of aware, and I'm just giving my own personal thought here, we were already aware that tourism was basically shut down. And so it felt a little strange for me that they waited until around mid-April to make the decision for tourists or any visitors to go into quarantine. It just seemed too late because people weren't really coming. So the thing, though, is a few people on Instagram did reach out to me because they were scheduled to arrive in Iceland during that time period and were sad to hear the news. Honestly, I don't think they would have made it anyway because the flights were being canceled right and left. However, I do think that any hope they had of visiting was gone now. 
most visitors to Iceland can't afford to spend two weeks in quarantine. And I think just in general, most people, when they go on vacation, can't afford to spend two weeks in quarantine. But it certainly doesn't help that Iceland is quite expensive. The Icelandic government, though, was pretty active this month in rolling out some new economic stimulus packages. So to further efforts with reducing the impact of the virus on the economy, they rolled out a second and third phase. So we'd already talked about how they were going to help individuals and put billions of ISK into the economy. But now they were like, okay, in addition to that first economic stimulus package, these phases will pump even more, but they're going to go to very specific places. And phase two is estimated to be 60 billion ISK, which is $411 million or around 378 million euros. I'm just going to read off some of the measures that the second phase would support. Quote, Companies forced to close operation for public health reasons will receive subsidies of up to 2.4 million ISK each. Immediate low-interest support loans will be granted to small and medium-sized businesses. Companies will be allowed to carry 2020 losses forward to offset income tax on 2019 profits. There will be a focus on mental health, remote medical services being strengthened, and a new campaign will be launched to combat domestic violence. Job seekers and vulnerable groups will receive dedicated support. A bonus will be paid to healthcare workers due to their heavy workload during the COVID-19 pandemic. Funds will be allocated to support summer school terms and the creation of over 3,000 summer jobs for students in Iceland. Study programs will be offered during the summer, work, study, and entrepreneurial projects. Financial support for artists will be increased by 40%. Grants will be given to local authorities for local development objectives to be reached. End quote. On April 28th, Parliament announced the third phase of the economic stimulus plan. The partial, the partial employment benefits that I mentioned earlier in this episode were set to end on May 31st. Part of this package included extending those benefits until the end of August. Until June 30th, the government would cover up to 75% of salaries for employees at companies that are struggling. Starting on July 1st, they will only cover 50% until the end of August. So essentially, they were extending their partial employment benefits, but also then easing off a little bit and making it so that companies couldn't have people just at 25% anymore. They would then have to take on 50% of people's salaries and the government would take on the other 50%. The partial employment benefits do not apply to employees who received a notice of termination. However, there is now funding to help those companies to cover severance pay, which in Iceland is three months of salary for many individuals. The overall goal is to help companies to avoid going bankrupt. In essence, this should help travel and tourism companies, including Iceland Air. It is my belief that since Iceland Air is the country's only airline, that it is potentially too big to fail. However, it is a privately owned company, so it's possible that if it gets to a point where the government cannot help it, unless it becomes property of the country, then it will have to forfeit being a private entity. This is, of course, all speculation on my part, so just take that with a big grain of salt. Sadly, April is when the most deaths happened in the country. Eight people lost their lives because of the virus. All of them in this month were over the age of 70, and the majority of them had been in the hospital. 
Some good news is that on April 23rd, Iceland had its first day with no new confirmed cases of the virus since the first one was announced in late February. On April 28th, the last patient in intensive care was discharged, which everyone celebrated. Also, less than 15% of the patients admitted to intensive care in the country died. This is so much lower than what was being reported in other countries. For instance, Italy, China, and England have reported death rates of between 50 to 90% of those that had been admitted to intensive care. The number of those in intensive care in Iceland reached 13 at its peak. Close monitoring and providing appropriate care in a timely manner have been the main reasons why Iceland has been able to help about 90% of those infected to recover. At the peak of the curve, which happened in early April, we had 1,096 active infections. On the last day of the month, we had 86 active infections. It is incredible to see the sharp drop in the number of active infections. You can see it for yourself because I have included a photo of the curve in the show notes of this episode. We reached an overall number of 1,795 infections by the end of April. April was a tough month for Iceland. Because of the rapid decrease in active infections, May has brought many positive changes. On May 4th, the gathering ban was relaxed a bit. 50 people instead of just 20 were allowed to gather at that point. Most non-essential places started to reopen, just as long as they abided by the 50 people or less rule. So bank branches, branches reopened, hair salons, libraries, movie theaters, massage parlors, beauty salons, museums, places that do physical therapy. People could take flight and driving lessons, and elective surgeries and dental services were also allowed to open. Swimming pools were still closed to the public in early May, but school kids were allowed to have swimming lessons. Restaurants that serve alcohol had to close by 11 p.m. In essence, though, things were slowly getting back to some resemblance of normal before the pandemic. One thing that was definitely not normal is that there's a complete lack of tourists. Along with testing a lot of people for the virus, it was announced that blood samples would be collected for antibody tests of the virus. The test will be done on blood samples of people that came in to have their blood tested for other reasons. It was stressed, though, that blood samples are not part of scientific research. Rather, they are being used to get an idea of how many people in the population have been infected with the virus. In early May, the managing director of the Icelandic Travel Industry Association alluded to the fact that Iceland might see tourists in late August or fall. Because the cases of infections have been declining in many European countries, it is possible that an agreement among these countries will be made so people can travel. Of course, it all depends on if people want to travel. You will hear in a little bit that there was a sharp turn regarding when tourists can come to Iceland, which happens a little bit later on the month. So maybe just in a few minutes as I'm kind of working through this timeline. But one big issue that had arisen for travel companies because of this crisis is the need to refund travelers because of canceled services, which is a pretty regular thing to do, and travel companies are used to doing it. However, they're not used to doing it in such massive amounts. Well, a controversial bill was brought up in Parliament about this. If passed, it would allow travel agencies to refund canceled tours by issuing a credit voucher instead of cash. Not surprisingly, this has caused a major debate. First off, 
is it even legal to do this? That is a big question that Althinki, the Icelandic parliament, is trying to get answered. The other issue is that Icelanders would be affected by this too. If they bought a tour package that could not happen because of the pandemic, their money, like other travelers from other countries, would be unavailable to them because it's been turned into a voucher. Yes, this change would possibly save tourism companies from going bankrupt, but what other effects would it have on the economy? One line in an article put it well by saying, quote, The Consumer Association of Iceland, the Icelandic Confederation of Labor, and BSRB, the Federation of State and Municipal Employees, have all harshly criticized the bill, claiming that its goal is to shift the burden of travel companies' liquidity crisis to the shoulders of consumers. End quote. It is also worth mentioning that during this time, in May and partly in April, there's been a big campaign to encourage Icelanders to travel around their own country. So as you would heard early on, only about 10% of Icelanders travel around Iceland, especially during the high season. There have been Facebook groups, which Icelanders are heavily active on Facebook, in order to showcase different deals. Hotels have been giving like deals of the century, activity companies, all of that to entice Icelanders. Because it is true that most Icelanders don't want to pay the amount of money that is the initial price of the tour or of the hotel stay because it's quite expensive. The thing is, is that the expensiveness of it has to do with being able to pay people a livable wage. Depending on what location you're in, it might be harder to get supplies there. Of course, a lot of things are imported here and so on. The thing is that Icelandic companies are willing to do this just over the summer to entice Icelanders just so they could get by. Many of them, I don't even know if they would break even by doing these deals, but they have been putting them out there and, and people for sure have been taking advantage of them. On the flip side, though, there have been people who have been complaining about the prices, even though these are the lowest price they'll ever see in the country regarding some of these available activities or accommodations. But there is somewhat of expectation from certain people, and I mean certain people, but just meaning maybe those who want to complain, that the prices should be similar to that as if they were going to Spain or somewhere else where things aren't as expensive. So it's just interesting that, you know, to have this discussion about consumers and travel companies and, you know, vouchers and whatever else. And then we have on this side, you know, you want people to invest in the travel industry in Iceland or at least pump some money into it who are living here. And you're kind of dealing with opinions and also the fact that the reason why Icelanders maybe haven't been traveling around the country is because they are highly critical of the prices. So this is kind of my thoughts are flowing out as I'm thinking about this. But I'm going to move on to talk a little bit about something slightly different, which is an experimental drug that arrived in Iceland. So another one, even though things have been looking up for the country regarding fighting the virus during May, they were essentially just like stockpiling drugs that were being given to them in order to deal with seriously ill people, which now that everyone was out of intensive care, there aren't that there aren't any seriously ill people. But the drug remdesivir was shipped to Iceland. And it is said to shorten the recovery time of patients with COVID-19 from 15 days to 11 days, which can be quite significant. And I'm sure a lot of people who did get sick with this virus would have loved to shave off some days if that was possible. And an article about the drug, though, wrote, quote, 
A study of 1,063 patients, some of whom received a placebo in hospitals around the world, showed that the drug shortened the recovery time by 31%. The experimental drug was originally developed by Gilead Sciences to treat Ebola, which it did not cure. The Gilead website cautions that remdesivir is an experimental medicine that does not have established safety or efficacy for the treatment of any condition. End quote. So like the other drugs that have been shipped to Iceland, in essence, you only use it if absolutely necessary and under the supervision of a medical professional, which I'm sure there were people working in the hospitals in Iceland who, if only it was the point of potentially life or death or keeping someone from getting to a point of almost dying, they would use one of these drugs. Uh, and who knows? I mean, if there is a, another resurgence of the virus, at least they have this stuff on hand, potentially help people. But as of right now, it seems that that isn't necessary, which we are very thankful for. So along with having a decent amount of drugs to help those infected with the virus, Eisen was rejoicing at hitting a five-day streak of no confirmed viruses in mid-May. So as this news was coming out, I personally started to witness people not seeing the virus as a serious threat as much any longer. At the grocery store, most people weren't wearing gloves or practicing social distancing consistently. Uh, just to make it very clear, we were never mandated to wear masks, and people in Iceland, for the most part, been, did not do that. As I saw people not you know, wearing gloves or not really social distancing, it did keep popping up in the back of my mind that we could see a spike in infections because of this. At the same time, it was really nice to have some kind of feeling of normal. It was as if the country was taking a collective sigh of relief. I'm not saying that this feeling should come before keeping safe. But on the other hand, I do understand everyone just wanting to go on about their lives without always thinking about this virus. Another awesome piece of news that came out around this time is that a woman that was 102 years old at the time recovered from COVID-19. Her name is Helga Gvudmansdottir, and she lives in the West Fjords. Incredibly, this woman lived through the Spanish flu and beat tuberculosis twice. She lives in the nursing home that I mentioned earlier in the West Fjords, where the virus spread to the staff and other residents. Helga turned 103 on May 17th. So happy belated birthday to her. In the midst of celebrating a fast reduction of confirmed cases, less people being hospitalized, and getting used to the fact that Iceland will not have tourists this summer, we were hit with an unexpected announcement. Katrin Jakobsdottir, the Prime Minister of Iceland, held a conference and said that the country will open its borders to tourists starting on June 15th. Katrin stated that visitors and Icelanders have three choices when they arrive to the country. First, they can stay in quarantine for 14 days. Number two, if they don't want to do that, they can get tested for the coronavirus at Keplavik International Airport. Or the third is they can present a certificate that shows they recently tested negative for the virus, which has to be approved by Icelandic health authorities. In addition to choosing one of those three options, everyone will be asked to download the Rakning C19 app. It helps authorities track the trace of transmission of the virus. I'm pretty sure that my jaw dropped when I heard this. Even though Iceland has handled the crisis well and is being touted as a safe haven from the virus, people are still holding off from traveling this summer. 
The reasons range from being fearful to the fact that their home country is still grappling with this virus. So it isn't even possible for some of them to even come. While I think it is great and necessary for Iceland to have tourists and to just announce, you know, when we had planned to be open, I think we need to be very careful about how we open up the country. If the virus spikes again because of visitors, it can backfire on the country. So people started to pop up with different questions about this decision to open on June 15th, such as what happens if a person arrives that tested positive for the virus? Will everyone on the plane be put into quarantine just as a precaution? Also, if you get screened at the airport, right after that, you have to go to your accommodations to await the results. We are hoping that these people don't violate the rules and go out to the grocery store or restaurant before they get their test results back. That's a bit risky, just in my opinion, <laughs> and less of a question, but more of a just, you know, something to think about. But, uh, but lastly, who's going to pay for these tests? It has been said that the government will do it for the first two weeks of this experiment, After that, it's not exactly clear if the visitors will pay or the government will pay, which if the government's paying, that means it's the citizens of Iceland who are paying. And that's a lot of money to shell out because I've heard that the test could cost 50,000 ISK and that could be around like $400. So it's a lot of money and not necessarily something that a lot of people would like to add on to their trip costs when they're traveling to Iceland. On top of that, though, when this announcement was made about the country opening up on June 15th, Chief Sales and Customer Experience Officer at Iceland Air said that, quote, Iceland Air would like to fly daily to destinations as Copenhagen, Oslo, Frankfurt, and Berlin after June 15th and to Amsterdam soon thereafter. There is more uncertainty regarding Stockholm and London. Several groups of people are ready to travel as soon as their borders are open, while other groups are expected not to be able to afford traveling, as a result of, of course, the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. In such a situation, planning is difficult. We can respond quickly and we'll do so when we sense there is a will to travel and interest from both directions in flying. End quote. Well, I guess we will just have to wait and see what happens. Before I jump into the rest of the episode, though, I want to mention something that is travel related and is really useful to anyone that is planning to visit Iceland in the future. I created the Ultimate Packing Checklist for Travelers, which is completely free, and it has all the essentials and more that you would need for summer and winter in Iceland. So if you are planning to visit, whether it's 2020, 2021, 2022, whichever, you can find this ultimate packing checklist on my website, Iceland forward slash Iceland dash packing dash checklist. And of course, I'll have a link to the in the show notes of this episode, but I'm only mentioning it because I know that this has come up from a lot of people that I've talked to regarding travel. And I'm inserting it here because I've been asked this a lot by different people in terms of what's appropriate to pack. And it will be relevant for literally any season because I split it up into checklists for summer and winter. So within it, though, you will also find tips on what to wear if you plan to go out to dinner or just walk around town. Make sure to grab that at allthingsiceland.com. Like I mentioned, I'll have the link to it. And you'll be really prepared in terms of what to pack when it is your time to be able to visit the country. I want to also make it clear that I don't 
think it has to be a completely negative thing that the country is opening on June 15th. And it could end up working out this plan. It's just fine. And even though it's an experiment that the way the country handles it works out well. But I do know that I'm more on the conservative side of things when it comes to stuff like this, because I'd rather be on the side of being more cautious than not cautious enough. But that is just my opinion of it and of some others as well. But I do think it's good to kind of look at it on both sides. The good thing, though, is that two other really big positive changes happened this month. And that that was that the pools in Iceland would be allowed to open on May 18th, as well as the gathering ban will now allow 200 people to gather starting on May 25th. Many of you might not be aware of this, but public swimming pools and hot tubs are a very important part of modern Icelandic society. Hanging out and chatting in a hot tub is like a national pastime here. A fun fact is that there are about 200 swimming pools in Iceland. 200! Almost every town has one. When the pools opened back up on May 18th at midnight, there were lines to get in. The largest pool, Løgardalsløg, had a line of 300 people waiting to get in. To be fair, it was mostly younger people that went at that time of day because it was midnight. And it was said to have felt like the opening of a new nightclub, which I found to be hilarious and kind of sweet. The pools are not normally open at midnight, but this is a special occasion. However, if you are an early bird and you do want to go to the pool, they're usually open at 6 o'clock in the morning. At that time, you're going to find people of the older generations going about their daily routine, chatting about politics in the hot tubs, and, you know, just kind of relaxing before the day starts. So while all of these positive changes were happening, we did get a smack of reality. And that was because two Icelandic banks came out with their economic forecast for 2020 and until 2022. And this was a way, I guess, to manage expectations. The Icelandic banks Landsbanken and Isansbanke ended up kind of, you know, doing their own way of forecasting. And when I say that, Isansbanke's forecast was quite optimistic, and they ended up predicting that a deep but hopeful brief recession is what we can look forward to. Overall, they expect the GDP to contract by 9.2% in 2020. In 2021, the growth of the GDP is thought to be 4.7% and 4.5% in 2022. According to Isansbanke, unemployment will average 9.6% in 2020, but will fall to 5.8% in 2021 and 3.8% in 2022. At first glance, the forecast from Landsbanken was a bit more grim. They even named it the setback of the century. However, that predicted a similar contraction in the GDP this year, which is a contraction of 8.7%. They also think that the GDP growth will be lower than what Isansbanke said for 2021 and 2022. The bank predicted a growth of 4.7% in 2021 and just 2.7% in 2022. Lastly, they think unemployment will be around 9% on average this year, 7% in 2021, and 6% in 2022, which is a lot more grim of a view than Isansbanke. 
So there's a little bit of conflict there in terms of not agreeing or maybe some grim looking predictions, especially coming from Landsbanken. But overall, I think it just is helping all of us to manage expectations and realize that we're in for a bit of a bumpy ride. As many of us anxiously await the country opening to tourists and what consequences that may bring, it seems that the rules keep relaxing every day. On May 25th, the two-meter social distancing rule became optional. On a personal note, my mother-in-law celebrated her 70th birthday on May 26th, and it was the first time I've been able to hug her in months. We were all nervous to do it, but it felt amazing to give her love. She lives alone and has been isolated in her apartment since March. It was a really beautiful moment, and I'm really glad that I was able to do that. I look forward to one day, hopefully very soon, being able to hug my mother who lives in New York City. I'm sure others who are listening to this probably feel the same way about their loved one who is in a high-risk group who you haven't been able to have physical contact with because that is very difficult and My heart goes out to everybody who is dealing with either loss from the virus or just emotionally having a hard time with not being able to physically connect with those they love. So now that you have an overview of what has been done within the country to combat the coronavirus, I'm going to move on to the random fact of the episode. I'm going to share two facts with you because it was hard to pick between the two of these. The first is that during the height of the pandemic, the police in Sudanese kindly asked people to cancel their criminal plans. It was pretty funny to hear and it seemed to have worked, potentially. (laughs) Well, either that or people were just too afraid to go out. The other fun fact is that Icelandic pop stars wrote and recorded a song called Let's Travel Indoors. It was very sweet And I have a video embedded in the show notes of this episode. I highly recommend watching it because it will fill your heart with so much joy. Plus, the ending of the video is so adorable. Now I'm going to move on to the Icelandic word of the episode, which is sotkvi. I'll say it slower. Sotkvi. Sotkvi. Sotkvi translates to quarantine. And if you break the word down, sot means illness, and kvi means pen, like an enclosed area for an animal, like a pig pen, but not necessarily just a pig pen, but still, just an enclosed area. So it's kind of funny and a bit bizarre that quarantine in Iceland is a mix of the words illness and pen. So you're in an illness pen, you're, you're locked in because of your illness in essence. And even though it is a little bizarre, I bet a lot of people that were in quarantine felt like they were caged in. If you are enjoying this podcast, you can show your support by leaving a five-star review of it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any platform you listen to this on that allows reviews. Also, please share this episode with anyone that you think will find it helpful and or interesting. Thaka thier kailegat fidit at Plus da og schaumst